Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Wizards, Warriors and Words, a fantasy writing advice podcast. Uh, I'm Jed Hearn, author of The Thunder Heist, and on today's episode, I'm joined by a very special guest, Adrian Collins. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jed. I appreciate it, mate. No worries. And as you listeners can probably tell by our accents, this is the first time we've had two Aussies on the show and we've kicked out all of the other regular hosts just for some uh, cultural appreciation of Australia. So... Uh, yeah, apologies in advance if you can't tell our voices apart. Normally, we have the advantage of like people being from four different countries. That's five fingers I'm holding up. Four different countries for people to tell the accents apart. Um, today, you're going to have to just distinguish between Western Australia and Eastern Australia, which is indistinguishable. Um, anyway, with that spiel out of the way, uh, Adrian, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, my name's Adrian. Great start, Adrian. Um, so I, I run a mag- an e-zine called Grimdot Magazine. We've been around for about seven years. Uh, just hit publish on our 27th issue about an hour ago. Um, we've been very fortunate to publish, you know, a lot of the people that um, I love reading. So we've published um, Mark Lawrence in our first issue. Uh, we've done Joe Abercrombie, uh, you know, Jeremy Saul. Who else? Anna Smith Spark a few times. Um, some goose called Michael R. Fletcher. Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to mention him. Not sure if anyone <laughs> likes him that much, but I, I get along with him. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, you know, Anna Stevens, like the, the amount of people we published is a significant list. And I've been very fortunate um, to be in a position where I've been able to set one of these up and just, you know, get along, I guess, get along with people enough and, and pay authors enough that they can, you know, they can jump on board and, and sell us some stories. Awesome. Yeah. So I think this, uh, first of all, yeah, Adrian, thanks again for coming on. Um, I think this will be a really cool episode because we often have authors on to, you know, talk about the writing process and everything, which is great, but it's also going to be really cool today, I think, to get into the mind of a publisher and actually understand the writing business more from that perspective. Um, so I thought we could start by talking a little bit about the Kickstarter that you are running at the moment for Grimdark Magazine, The King Must Fall. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is about? Yeah, definitely. So um, I reckon probably nine months ago, um, an author called Bradley P. Uh, Boilio uh, gave me a shout out of the blue and said, hey, Adrian, I've got this idea for an anthology, but I, I just don't have time um, to, to, to get it done and, and to push it through. Would you be interested in taking the theme and um, you know putting together a Kickstarter like you did with Evil as a Matter of Perspective um, back in 2016? And I just, I hate free time. So I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> Great idea. Um, so, you know, I, I put out, put out the feelers, got everyone together um, and managed to get some amazing authors. We have uh, Anthony Ryan, Cameron Hurley, Daniel Polanski, um, Fletcher again, just I love the blokes uh, fiction. Um, Anna Smith-Spark. We've just added um, Anna Stevens as a stretch goal. 
nice. um, author. We have like just just a brilliant list of authors. Um, Jed, if you don't mind, maybe posting a uh, a link to the to the Kickstarter. They, they oh, can just absolutely. go to yeah, yeah, yeah. Link will be in the show notes for this episode. So yeah, if you're listening on the podcast player, just scroll down, check it out. If you're watching on YouTube, it'll just be um, in the description down there. Yeah, there's some great so, authors like Adrian Tchaikovsky, one of my personal favorites. Yeah. Um, Justin Call, who I had him on uh, my podcast, a different podcast actually, like just after his debut novel came out uh, a few years oh, ago. Yeah, so yeah. it's cool to see him continuing with that, which is good. Um, and yes, yeah, some, some other great authors there as well. Trudy Canavan, who um, I remember reading one of her books back when I was a kid. So yeah, this yeah. is yeah, yeah, really cool Melbourne. Place. So we've, we've been pretty lucky actually. We've got a, um, a few Australian authors in it, but Devin Madsen as well. Um, oh, yes, yeah. Jeremy Saal, who just released uh, Blind Space and is about mm. to release. Oh, he's going to kill me. Oh, what's the name of the second <laughs> one? Jeremy, I'm that. sorry. <laughs> That's all good. I'll, I'll do a quick Google. Uh, what else has he had? Stormblood? I feel like that ship has sailed. Yeah, sorry. He's about to release Blind Space and Stormblood was his first book. That's um, yeah. And I'm catching him for a beer tomorrow. So release hey. this after. Yeah, you, <laughs> you won't know about your betrayal. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah Stormblood has a sick cover as well. Really like oh, it. Oh, it's so good, right? I, just, yeah. I love the the ambient blue and just that real cyberpunk feel. They have nailed that cover so nicely. Yeah, no, um, it's awesome. But yeah, so we have that. Um, we've got a beautiful cover by Felix Ortiz and um, Sean King. So it's just, you know, pretty much the, the indie publisher dream team. Oh, yeah. Right there. <laughs> And um, we've got some interior art by uh, Carlos Diaz, who does all of the um, covers for Grimdark Magazine. Got Greg Patmore is going to do, if we get to the stretch goal, he's going to do an audio version for everybody. Um, so it, it, there's a lot of goodies that we're hoping to include in, in the final product. Yeah, no, it looks epic. Um, yeah, we've had Felix on the show as well. So yeah, this is definitely just like a alumni of the show going on the Kickstarter, which is nice to see. Cover looks amazing. Um, no one quite does uh, like five degree angle title text quite as good as Sean King. And this cover oh, is just I another another epic example of, of why that can look so effective. Um, yeah, the interior art looks amazing as well. Yeah, it just, it looks, it just looks really good. It just looks really good. <laughs> so do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the, the themes of the, the Kickstarter? Because as I understand it, usually when you're doing these Grimdark Magazine Kickstarters, you sort of are building them around a bit of a, a concept. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So for, for this one, um, you know, pretty much uh, Bradley just gave me a very straightforward the king must fall was the idea. Do with, do with it what you will. So I, I took the same approach for the authors and just said, like, this is the, this is the title. And I was just like, we just want to see, um, you know, kings or, or leadership figures. So I'm hoping to see maybe a queen or two, some, some gang members, you know, gang leaders, that sort of deal um, falling. I, I didn't specify if they had to have already fallen or if they had to fall if maybe they fell but they didn't lose you know we in, in grimdark we love mm. it when our protagonists don't quite get what they want um you know oh, so there's i think there's going to be a, probably a fair bit of regicide um <laughs> you know based on the type of stuff we publish and the type of stuff those authors um love to write about and um yeah hopefully some some big battles some sneaky assassins some backstabbing betrayals uh, you know just just all the all the ways we love to see power come down. Nice. And I'm really curious, like when you, so you have a theme like that, when you're kind of pitching it to the various authors who you've got writing in the anthology, is that basically all that you're giving them or are you giving them some other, you know, kind of requirements in terms of what they're writing? Like what's that, what's that sort of pitching or brief process like to the authors? Okay, so, so what I do for a living in a day job is I'm, I'm a bid manager. And so for a living, I write pitches to clients to try and sell very large products. So, you know, not cheap, quick decisions, you know, nine month processes. So mm. the the key thing for me is, you know, something I was taught when I first started bid managing is that whenever you write something to a potential candidate, customer, or in this case, an author, you have to read it back to yourself and ask yourself, why do I give a shit about this email? Yes. And so I think, I feel that a lot of mistakes people make when they're doing pitches is they they blurt out everything that sounds cool to them and they forget to focus on the stuff that matters to the author. So for starters, is it an author that's going to want to write about the stuff that you're 
you know, hoping to, to the theme you're basing the anthology about. So obviously doing your pre-research, so you're not hitting up a, a I, I don't know, like a romance author for a dark fantasy story. Like maybe they could do it, who knows? But I mean, you've you know, got that's... Michael R. Fletcher writing for you. So you have done that. True. True. Yeah, okay, fair call. <laughs> um, but then you also need to go, right, what are the, you know, in as short a way as possible, what are the terms? What's the pay? What's the length of exclusivity? What rights do you want? Um, what formats do you want? Um, what are the deadlines? You know, what are the, the word limits? Um, you know, there's a range of stuff you need to put in there, but you also need to make it look really attractive. So I made sure that I waited until I had that amazing mock-up of the cover. So they had something where they could visually link to and go, that looks sweet. The theme looks cool. You know, the, um, the offer for, you know, for payment and rights and whatnot looks at least fair and amicable. And then let's go for it. And, you know, obviously I, I got plenty of no's plenty of, sorry, I'm too busy, uh, a fair few no responses, but, but that's just pitching. You know, you, if you don't send it, you can't be told no pretty much. Absolutely. And are you approaching these authors like one at a time, hoping to, you know, kind of get some big authors saying yes, so that then you can go to the other authors and say, oh, this person has signed up. Do you want to be part of it as well? Or are you kind of doing more of a like mass approach to you know, speed up the process and make sure that you're not just just waiting on one person to respond. Um, I did it in batches. Okay. So I sort of broke up a very long author list into um, a series of authors that I, for example, there's a group of them that I know and trust, and mm -hmm. you know Michael R. Fletcher, Anna Smith Spark, um, Brad as well, and a few others where I go. I know that if I send something to these guys and ask them to join, if they're able to join, they're going to knock, they're going to knock the story out of the park. It's going to land with the people that we sell to our marketplace. You know, they're, they're well-known names. They, they're engaged on Facebook, you know, they, they're on podcasts and, and that sort of deal. But um, importantly is I know that I'm going to get a quality story it is very unlikely that I'll have to go back to them and say, I'm sorry, you've missed the brief because I, I know that they, you know, they always do their best and they usually nail it every single time. Um, then I had a series of, I guess, authors that I didn't have much of a relationship with, but I knew their work and I thought, you know, they're going to be really cool. So I'll, I'll you know, pitch to them as well. Um, and then I had, I guess, what you would call some marquee authors that I pitched to, mm -hmm. um, you know, so for example, and and just so we're clear, I, I got told no, pretty much every single marquee author. And that's just, sure. you know, that's just life. But um. You know, I, I hit up George Martin. I was like, hey, would you be interested in doing a thousand words at this as an introduction on why the king must fall? You know, basically, yeah, the king, almost every human being on the face of the planet wanted to die about, you know, when did, when did Joffrey kick the bucket? About, <laughs> about seven years back or six years back or whenever that came out. Um, I was like, imagine having an, an introduction from him. And it would then be pretty epic the, to do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, I hit up Joe Abercrombie. I hit up... Um, Raymond E. Feist. I hit up, you know, as many big names as, as I could. I hit up. I tried to hit up Neil Gaiman, but his his email address is very elusive. I can imagine. Um, Does he even have? <laughs> I imagine you just have to not. draw a pentagram on in the doorway of some like nineteenth century chapel and send him a carrier pigeon to communicate with him. Pretty much, and that's probably just how you get to his agent, let alone yeah. get to him. <laughs> his agent um, is actually uh, Fizzlebub, the demon. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it's basically a process like that. And, you know, I, I'm hoping I haven't hurt any of the author's feelings, but sometimes, <laughs> you know, the authors that you get are not the first people that you get, but at the same time, you don't want the reversing to happen, which is where you send out a hundred pitch emails, 40 people come back to you and you go, oh, balls, I've only, ah. got, only got 14 slots. Yes. So it, it's kind of a there's just a mixture of people you hail Mary pass, you know, people, you know, are going to, you know, pr there's a high chance that I'll commit and there's a very good chance I'll give you a, a great product. And then a, a group in the middle who you like, I know their work. I love their work. They're recognizable um, faces and, you know, I can sell their name on a cover. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, it just, again, looking at the list of authors, it's like a pretty compelling, <laughs> it's going to be a pretty compelling offer for sure. Um, yeah. That's we're, we're very lucky, actually. There are a few in there that I was so sure I would just not even hear, you know, hear back yeah, from right. because I, I just had no relationship with them 
you know, most of them wouldn't have even known me from a bar or so. So mm. very, very lucky, which is where hopefully, you know, maybe they think my pitch email was terrible and they wrote back because they thought it was funny, but I, that hopefully that's where my skill set, which is not really fiction writing, it's not fiction writing at all. My skill set is that sort of bid management work. That's where hopefully it's shown, shone through and, and provided some benefit. You mind? You don't have to say if you if you don't want to, but do you mind telling like which authors you are particularly excited to get because maybe you weren't expecting to to get them? Yeah, um, probably two straight off the bat that I was not expecting to get would be Cameron Hurley and Daniel Polanski. Um, nice. Yeah. Both are just amazing, but I've just never never had an opportunity to speak to either one before. Um, you know, just never had a chance to engage with them, and. You know, I just, they were two of the ones where I just went, oh, I'm not sure, but I'd really love to publish them. And they, you know, they wrote back and I was just like, yes, so good. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. I definitely like, yeah, that, that feeling of reaching out to an author who you really respect, but you've never actually had any contact with. And you, you're just like, I really hope you can be on this podcast or I really hope that you can be in this anthology or whatever. And then they, they're eager for it. It's a pretty yeah. incredible feeling. So yeah, congrats, man. Um, and, and most authors are, are really, really happy to, you know, be engaged and chat to you. Like you look at, um, for Grimdark Magazine, Elizabeth Tabler or Beth, um, you know, she's one of the people that drives our, um, our online content creation team. And the, the people she's interviewed are amazing. And the list keeps growing. And the reason that it keeps growing is because she puts so much research into her questions. She, she rereads series because she's an absolute weapon. At, you know, at reading series, she'll work with, you know, um, James, our other um, content driver, she'll work with the team to get insights and different ideas. And they really love, you know, authors really love her interviews. And so now when we pitch to a new author to say, hey, you know, do you want to interview? Like when we're pitching to a Richard K. Morgan and those sorts of guys, we're able to sort of, I guess, send some of Beth's previous interviews and go, you can see the research that she puts in this is not yeah. 10 standard templated questions these are well-researched conversational questions and that's actually how we got richard k morgan to do the introduction for the king must fall because i'd pitched him a couple of times before and he was like i'm sorry i don't really do you know i don't do a lot of short fiction um i don't do short fiction at all and you know but you know if we figure out something later on no worries and then beth did this amazing in-depth interview with him and then off the back of that i was like hey you know, you've had a great experience. What do you think about doing the intro for this book? And he also, he did the intro for this one and he also did an introduction. I can't remember if it was before or after that interview for um, Neon Leviathan, the TR Napa uh, collection that we published start of last year. Yeah, because I saw the Richard K. Morgan testimonials on that and I was like, wow, that's pretty good to get the author of Ultra Carbon like as that series was exploding as well to, yeah, blurb your book. That was pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You should have seen Tim when I told him we, uh, <laughs> we got that. I, I think he nearly popped with excitement. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that is, you know, one of Tim's literary heroes. And um, if you ever get a chance to read um, Tim's book, you just, he's so good at setting the scene and plucking the heartstrings. And, you know, he's, yeah. And that, that's why I think uh, Richard enjoyed that book so, so much. You know, just awesome. really good themes throughout each story. I think that's a big thing as well to like anyone out there who wants to interview an author or whatever is like authors have heard the same questions hundreds of times, especially your big yeah. authors. Like they've all heard, you know, where do you get your ideas from? And yeah, like that kind of generic stereotypical stuff. So even just one of the things I will sometimes do when I'm interviewing an author and like, I want to ask them something that no one has asked them before is I will literally say, Hey, what do you wish people asked you about? that they don't ask you about. And as simple as that sounds like, that's something that authors really appreciate because quite often they're like, I just really want to talk about this character or this thing I did, but no one's asking me any questions about it. And I can't just steer the conversation there. So I guess I'm not going to talk about it at all. So yeah, that's definitely a really useful skill to have for anyone out there who's wanting to do interviews or whatever. Um, I actually think that's, that's a great question to ask them as well, Jed. That's oh, thank you. Like a really sharp way to look at it. Because yeah, quite often they have stuff they want to talk about and just, you know, through bad luck or, or poor research, you know, nobody's just thought to ask them. 
yeah, it's the ultimate uh, interviewer's lazy question as well, because <laughs> it makes you sound, first of all, I don't think I can take credit for it. I think it, it came from like a Tim Ferriss book or something like that. But um, second of all, yeah, it's like, it's the ultimate lazy question, but it's ironically really good because of that, because it's like, yeah, yeah you're just allowing their interest to, to kind of steer the conversation. Um, in terms of, like you mentioned before, how you, you like to work with authors who obviously are going to deliver stories that are close to the brief and you know that there's not going to be any revisions needed or anything like that. Have there been any times in the past where an author has sent you something that was just a totally bad fit, didn't really work, and you had to go back to them and, and kind of get them to redo it? Like, how do you approach that conversation? Because I, for one, would probably be terrified going back to an author who I really respect and being like, oh, I'm so sorry, but you're going to have to write this again or you're going to have to change this thing. So how do you kind of manage that conversation? Um. The, the first time I did it, I was quite similar. I was absolutely packing it when I sent <laughs> off the email. I just went, this guy is going to fly over from the UK, walk up my driveway and throw a brick through the window with <laughs> fuck you tied to it. And I was just thinking, but, but obviously you overthink this stuff, right? Like you, most of them have probably worked white collar jobs before. Most of them have, you know, been to school and stuff like that and where they have submitted things and somebody's looked them in the face and gone, Jed, I'm sorry, but that's not that's not what I'm after. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're all adults. I actually haven't had a bad experience with sending it back and saying, I'm sorry, this doesn't work for us. I think, um, like, I, I obviously won't name names, but the, you know, the probably the worst thing that's ever happened is I've, I've gone back and said, look, I'm sorry, this one doesn't work thematically for our market. Um, and they'll just come back and say, look, okay, I understand. I appreciate that. Um, but I'm not going to have time to deliver you another story before your deadline. And unfortunately that one author was our marquee author for the ah. issue. That was the, you know, that was the name in lights. But again, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I know some amazing authors again, like Fletcher, like Anna Smith-Spark, you know, I know a, a fairly decent list of people who either have some, you know, some stories sitting around that they can, you know, kind of shoot over and we can run through it and make sure it lands. Um, or are willing to, you know, say, hey, you know what, give me a week and I'll, I'll punch something out. So in that, in that case, it, it didn't end up being a problem. It was just I had to, um, I guess, ask a favour from, you know, from one of, the, one of the authors that I know. Nice. So, yeah, to this date, you haven't had any authors don their Viking chainmail armour, swim their longboats across to uh, Australia and pillage your village and burn your house oh, down like to a crisp? Honestly, the, the only, I guess, negative experiences that I've had with authors have been from our submission uh, windows. Yeah, fair enough. So fair enough. The back, back when we used to do um, feedback, you know, you get oh, yeah. <laughs> one in 20, one in 30 people who just refuse to believe their work is anything but perfect. And yes. you were just the dumbest human on earth for not purchasing it from them. Um, and that was one of the reasons behind why we don't do feedback anymore because our guys were putting all this effort to be like hey here's constructive feedback to help mm -hmm. you maybe sell this somewhere else and sometimes they just get their heads bitten off so yeah. i was just like you know what <laughs> it takes a lot of time it's not as efficient and some it's just sometimes really unappreciated so it just didn't seem worth it in the end yeah no it totally makes sense and yeah pro tip if you are submitting to a magazine and they give you feedback don't <laughs> don't rage out at them don't even, I would probably say, don't even send anything back, even a thank you or whatever. Just like, just take it because they're busy. They don't have time to deal with your continued nuisancing. And like, yeah, that's, that's rare that any places would give feedback. So it, it uh, yeah, it's probably more of an industry standard thing to not do that. So yeah, don't take it personally if you do get rejected from these magazines and you're applying for them or whatever. Um, uh, mate, if you look at the submission grinder and look at the percentage of people that actually get accepted into most magazines that pay anything above token, like oh, yeah. it is, it is brutal, like yeah. utterly brutal. And, you know, I, I guess you could look and say it's, it's unfair and it's frustrating and, you know, probably some great stories just never see the light of day. But unfortunately that, that is just the industry we work in. And, and, you know, if I had, crazy revenue and I could jam 30 stories into every issue. Like I, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I'd love to do it, but that's just not the reality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I remember a few years ago when I was kind of in that, that short story submission phase and, and using a submission grinder to yeah find marketplaces and submit it. Yeah. 
it's brutal. It's brutal, but it's also good because you look at other people and how much they're getting rejected from various publishers and everything. And you're like, oh, this is not anything personal. You know, it's it's pretty standard. Um, but I'm glad I don't have to do that these days as much. So <laughs> that is nice. Um, I'd love to transition into talking a little bit about, uh, actually, oh no, before I, before we get into talking about Grimdark Magazine, which I definitely would like to talk a bit more about the kind of behind the scenes of that. What goes into creating a, a successful Kickstarter? Because you've done... How many of these by now? This is the third one? Three. So Three? I've done uh, Evil is a Matter Perspective that went really, really well. Yep. Um, like so much better than I ever thought it would go. Uh, we did one called Landfall, which fell so flat on its face it didn't even get off the boat. Oh. Um, and then we did, and now we've got the King Mass Fall, which has funded, and now it's just a question of how many stretch goals we can jam into it. Um, I can say that what goes into a successful Kickstarter in, in my experience. You know, if you chat to a Sean Speakman or a Michael Sullivan and, and his wife, Robin, um, or, you know, Dirk, they, they probably will give you hopefully somewhat similar answers, but probably a stack of other, you know, different caveats and different points that I haven't thought of because their publishing models are different to mine. So for me, the, the key thing is, um, A, you want to make sure people are compensated that are contributing to it. So... Um, from day one, I've always made sure GDM pays people and, and pays as well as, as possible, um, avoided token payments, all that sort of jam. So straight off the bat, I made sure that we worked in uh, good finances for everybody. Um, and one of the mistakes I made with Evil was I tried to do the finances myself in full knowledge that I am a mathematical moron. And so I ended up making pretty much no money off that Kickstarter and only making it in the years that followed off the follow-on sales. So first things first, for this one, I, I reached out, used the whiskey economy to hire a friend of mine. Who's <laughs> the a whiskey regional. economy. <laughs> I've never heard that term before. That's so good. He's, um, yeah, so he's a, he's a regional, um, uh, regional controller for a company that deals in um, products that have both fixed and transactional fees. And so, which is essentially what this Kickstarter is, right? You have fixed costs like your author pay, um, your cover art and that sort of deal, but then you have um, more transactional and, and I guess variable costs in that when you do a print run, you get so many hundred books in your first print run at X dollars per book. And then every book after that is a different price. And so the more and more you sell, the more and more cost you add to your cost base and so obviously you always need to make sure that you're keeping an amount of profit through the Kickstarter, no matter, you know, as, as best you can throughout, depending on the source mix of people buying um, eBooks, special editions, hard covers and bookmarks, even, you know, you need to sure. factor in all these things they, they have to be paid for by somebody. And if you screw up the Kickstarter's T's and C's make it quite easy for, collectively the backer group to sue you as a creator wow, if, okay. if you grew up so yeah it's not something you can take lightly mm. um so yeah key thing finances do not stuff up your finances build in a buffer because things always go wrong they right always go wrong you know so um that's probably one of the key points the next thing is obviously you need to sell this product so you need to have a super super clear message that is almost short blunt but also fun that tells people what they are buying. Yeah. And this, this is what we screwed up on Landfall. So we started out thinking we were going to compete with um, Cereal Box and create an ongoing you know, thing of uh, you know, monthly um, stories that were yes. set in this world that they as a team of creators built together. Mm -hmm. And then about, huh, like about three weeks out or, or two weeks out from going live, I looked through the financials because again, like a moron, I was like, you know what? I can do the financials. It'll be, it'll be fine this time. I learned from last time. <laughs> and um, I went right with the amount we're paying authors and the amount we're paying for this, that, and the other. And I just went, oh, shoot. I think we've, I think we've screwed up. Um, mm -hmm. And I realized that the amount of backers we would have to get at the price point that people would pay for a digital only product was so ridiculously high that there was so far, it was just beyond impossible that we were going to find the thousands of backers that would have to get to pay for this product. Yeah. And so I was like, shit, what do we do? And so 
I was chatting to the, the co-creator and we went, right, so let's just quickly flip this into an anthology product like the last one, because then we can bring in print products, we can bring in special editions, we can bring in a range of stuff that now allows us to make a higher amount of money per unit, which will help us pay the creator group. Yeah. And that basically ended up with not giving ourselves enough time to sit down, re-whiteboard what the sales message was so and redo the copy properly on the Kickstarter. So when people picked it up, we've been marketing it the whole way in the lead up as something completely different to what it was. And then we didn't communicate the change in product properly because I think we were both, the co-creator and I were probably so burnt out by this point, just trying to make this thing work. We just got to the fuck it point, hit yeah. launch. And then three days later, just hit cancel because we just went you know what we've balls this up so badly and um yeah i think i have to admit that i probably burnt a couple of author relationships in, in that and that was probably a big mistake and one of my i guess you'd say my big regrets mm. having been a part of gdm so far has been the way that product that yeah the way that kind of collapsed and fell over with all the work that people put into it was just really really disappointing yeah, that would be a big shame. So it's definitely the the buffer is is really critical to have that to have that in. I think I think Dirk has mentioned that as well on, on some previous episodes. What yep. kind of um what kind of like you don't have to get into specifics obviously, but like what kind of rough percentage are you building into there for a buffer? Um, and again, you don't have to get into specifics if you don't. Uh, that, that's okay. So the buffer is I think I had it at about twelve or fourteen percent, mm-hmm. um, and then. Like I can tell you already that, you know, bits of that have been eaten up in advance and I've sure. had to rework the spreadsheet again. So we made an announcement, I think about, it feels like four or five days ago, maybe a week ago that we are partnering with the broken binding in the UK so that we can ship direct to them from our printer in Southeast Asia. And they will then um, ship to the UK and EMEA at a significantly reduced cost to what, um, we were previously going to do it when we were shipping from uh, the US. And so COVID has not been kind to shipping at all. No, <laughs> like, yeah. not at all. It's been brutal. And so pretty much what's happened is what was costing us for evil as a matter of perspective, I can't remember, I want to say 25 bucks or something to ship from the US to the UK. So it wasn't that big a deal. Like it was XE, but not so XE that the entire UK book market would just be like, what the hell? $50 yeah. a book. It actually costs us more to ship the book there than it does to like sell the actual book, which is just insane. It's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I didn't really have any other options until I had a random Twitter conversation with the owner of the Broken Binding. And I just went, hey, would you do this? And he went, yep, here's my costings. Here's what your new shipping will be. Yeah. And so obviously that benefits the backers, but I then have to pay for those books to be shipped separately and so cut away from the palette that's going to the US, cut away from the books that are coming to Australia where I'm distributing from, from Sydney. And then that gets shipped over there. And that's another, that's a new cost that I didn't have before. Mm. And so, yeah, because when you're bulk shipping a palette, it's, it's fine. You've got a set cost per palette. But then as soon as you start carving up, carving up that palette, it becomes, the shipping becomes quite uneconomical. Yeah. But the backer benefit is great because... It's cheaper for them in the UK. They're a huge book market that I completely missed the boat on. And hopefully that, uh, that's kind of been resolving itself over the last week, which has been good to see. Yeah, okay. So that's definitely a good thing to bear in mind because I'm, I'm not doing a book Kickstarter anytime soon, but towards in a few months time, I will be doing a Kickstarter for totally side projects, uh, making a board game with a friend and we're going to be doing a Kickstarter to launch it. So definitely awesome. good to be aware of, um, yeah, the importance What's of doing a buffer. Uh, it's a, well, I don't know if I can give details about it yet, but uh, it's going to okay. be just a card based <laughs> thing. Um, yeah. I'll tell you off air. I'll tell you off air if you want to hear about it. But right. uh, yeah, card yeah definitely. Thing. So it's pretty straightforward. Um, it kind of like, yeah, it's, it's, it's short. It, it uh, builds upon a game that almost everybody will have in their home. I'll say that. I'll say that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, um, the, the ex owners of uh, Ragnarok Publications did a uh, card game. And they'd probably be some some good people to reach out to and ask what the pitfalls sure. of the project are. And that's that's probably actually a big bit of advice, I think, for anyone running a Kickstarter. Um, you know, call up or email somebody who's done it before and just ask them, where did you screw up? 
what, what cost you money last time? And they will hopefully be able to provide you with a few pitfalls that you can avoid. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, definitely a good tip. Um, yeah, you're right. Because something as simple as a buffer, right? Like most people doing Kickstarters for the first time would probably just think, oh, okay, you know, I'll just, I'll just do 5% or I'll just break even. I want to make sure that I'm being, you know, as generous to my customers and backers as possible. And it's like, that's a great intention, but you actually won't be able to be as generous to them as possible if you don't have a bit of safety margin built in. So yeah. Exactly. And, and be like, be stupidly thorough in mm. your costings. So, you know, you, you may choose, you may decide that a bunch of expenses are sunk costs. So, that, you know, they come out of your bank account as opposed to coming out of the money that the backers give you. So for example, our, our marketing is all sunk costs that comes from GDM's bank account versus waiting for, for money to come in and that money is not backfilled from yeah. the backers. So it doesn't bump up, you know, it doesn't bump up the amount of money we need to raise from them. But it's amazing, you know, how much these things cost. And I mean, you know, you've got to factor in buying new ISBNs if it's a book. You've got to factor in, yeah. um, you know, paying an artist and you've got to factor in like like I did with, with Felix. I, I screwed up and I tried to, drive him too much towards an idea that I had. And then he went down the track and I was just like, this is crap. You know, he's not, he's not enjoying it. I'm not liking it. And I just went, you know what? I'm cl I've clearly put my foot on your creative throat and this isn't working. So we had to go, right. You know, that cost the work up to that point costs this much money, pay that invoice, cut it, move on to a new invoice for a, you know, a work started from scratch again. So, there are so many things that will go wrong. And if you mm. don't have that buffer, it is really difficult to, and it, it hurts to reach into your bank account when you run out of money. And I, I know this because with evil as a matter of perspective, I gave a stack of money to a distributor who went bankrupt. Oh, and then no. I had to repay that money elsewhere because like I said a while back, the Kickstarter backer rules if I had have just gone, sorry guys, I've blown that money, I'm stuffed. It makes it very easy for them to put a class action against you. And as a creator, you are warned outright. You know, yeah. They they might not, but if they do, the platform's probably going to make it easier for them to do it based on what you've agreed to as a creator. Sure, and it makes it makes sense with their business model as well, because obviously you don't want backers having bad experiences with it, and there is a lot of risk on them. So yeah. it makes sense, but yeah, obviously. Don't want it to happen. So <laughs> that is uh, very good to be aware of. Are there any other kind of mistakes you, you would suggest avoiding or any other tips you have for Kickstarter? If that's even a verb. Um, yeah. So I think you like there's the, one of the things that really does my head in, there's a lot of pred very predatory um, marketing firms that prey on backers. And so what tends to happen is that you, most products, like a, in, in my experience, the, the book products have high-end um, value products that, dis, that get sold very, very quickly. So you have a very small amount of customers driving your um, driving the amount of money that you're raising up really quickly. So if you look at a graph of almost every Kickstarter, the first two days are just like a, a mountainside, like, yeah, and then yeah, and then once all those big products are sold, and all of a sudden your core fan base has gone, I've done it. I've backed the product. I'm, you know, great. And all of a sudden you switch to a very long, slow slope of a slog until right at the end, because you've switched from high-end expensive products to your more standard low cost products. So all of a sudden you have to find a whole lot more people to fund, you know, and to, you need to come up with some ideas on how you're going to get spikes in that, that middle section. How are you going to drive it up bit by bit? And then, you know, back towards your um, financial planning, have you planned in enough product, the high-end product, I guess, to make sure you get as close to that 100% in the first couple of days? Because there's, there's nothing worse than seeing a project that just misses out by a thousand bucks and you know someone's worked their guts out for 30 yeah. days to try and get it over the line and it's just fallen short you know for want of a thousand dollars for one of five hundred dollars mm. so pretty much what you need to do is plan so heavily your marketing 
not for that, like that opening bit, sure thing, plan it, hit your key targets, you know, get rid of your big products and, and get them out the door. But in that middle bit, like how are you going to kickstart the, I guess, the, the financial bumps, you know, which, which blogs are you talking to? Who are you asking if you can, you know, have, have an interview on a, on a, uh, you know, on a, a video interview with, um, you know, to like that, 28 day period or 26 day period or whatever it is, that is a point where you, if you've planned out an extensive marketing plan, even if it's just, you know, five pages of ideas of what you mm. might do, that's going to help you so much because in that period is when you'll get a whole bunch of um, uh, marketing companies come up to you and they'll be like, you know what? We have half a million people on our email list. And people go, oh, half a million people. And how it's only 200 bucks to use you. So let's do it. But as soon as you ask the question, what percentage of those half a million people have backed publishing products, say in the last year? What percentage have you know done a done a click-through off your email specific to say anthologies? Yes. Not even sci-fi anthologies, just sorry, not fantasy anthologies. Yeah, anthologies in general. How many have done that? What's your open rate? All of a sudden, when you ask for segregation, they go, very quiet. oh, you know, it's a, it's a kitchen sink thing or they just don't respond. Now, if you like, Jed, I'm not sure what you do for a, for a day job. Sorry, mate. But yeah, playground um, designing. Oh, that's awesome. Actually, <laughs> it's very different to writing. But yeah, it's good fun. That's actually really cool. I've never met a playground designer before. Yeah, well, this is what um, they all look like. <laughs> just dashingly handsome in Australia, oh. no matter where in the world you You're are. You're too kind. You're too kind, Adrian. Um, but like, you know, if you've ever worked with a, a marketing person in your company, as soon as you go to them, they know almost every single thing about every vertical piece yeah. of their email list. Mm -hmm. And you can be like, what is the click rate for people named Karen sitting in Sydney who like lollipops? And they go, I can get that for you. So okay. you know, it's not a capability thing. You know, it's a marketing approach where they try to woo you with a massive number in the hope that you're in that huge long 24 day slump, you're panicking enough to just yeah. give them money. And then probably so, hoping that you don't follow up with them to actually track what results that's generating. So then correct. you can just feel like it was worthwhile for the, for the yeah. spend. And exactly. And like some of the, you know, some of the amounts of, you know, that they ask to be paid sometimes seems so minimal and small, but you have no way of knowing if they have half a million email uh, email addresses you've got no way of knowing if two hundred thousand of those email addresses are dead and non-responsive and have exactly. never opened one of their emails yeah you know so it's just you just need to be so careful and if you have a predetermined plan that covers off what you're going to do in those 24 days and you're willing to accept that some things work well and some you know some nights you'll go to sleep and you'll wake up the next morning and there are 20 new backers and another grand on in the pot but some, day, some days you'll go to sleep, you'll wake up and there are five less backers because yeah. five people <laughs> pulled their money out of the pot and walked away and you can't let that panic you. You have to mm. trust in the pre-work. But if you haven't done the pre-work, I feel that you're more likely to panic and end up just throwing and frittering more money away. That is such an important point about predatory marketing agencies because, and, and that applies to like a lot of, of services out there. If you're an author and particularly if you have your email address on your website publicly, like I do, it's, <laughs> you will get a lot of people approaching you promising to solve all of the problems that you're facing. And maybe that's true, but I've, I've yet to have had anyone cold email me with a solution to the problems that I'm specifically going through as an author. So yeah, it, I think it's just worthwhile remembering that if they did have such a predictable way of, you know, producing, book sales or Kickstarter results or whatever, the question you should be asking is, okay, well, why aren't you just doing this yourself to make what seems like an infinite amount of money that you can just print with no effort? And they're like, oh, you know, we want to help other people. And it's like, okay, well, that could be true. Or it could also be the case that you can't do it. And you rely on, yeah, people who are feeling insecure about their books or about their Kickstarters or whatever yeah. to kind of give their money away. And that also like, to some extent as well, I think that goes for a lot of software things too. Like there's some great, you know, programs out there that are really useful for writers. And then there's a lot of stuff which you don't need and people will really try to convince you that they need it. And yeah, so just be, just be mindful of that. I think is a, is a good thing. 
Definitely. And I think somebody who has done a lot of research into that, into the, the predatory marketing, especially to self-published um, yes. authors is uh, Ben Galley. If you ever get a chance to look sure. through his YouTube channel, there's a bunch of funny random stuff in there because it's a pretty hilarious bloke, but there's some really, really well-researched pieces on vanity presses mm. and, and, you know, uh, probably vanity marketer. I'm not sure if that's the right term for them. But, <laughs> You've coined um, it, Adrian. But, You've coined it. <laughs> yeah, vanity marketers. Here it is. Um, but yeah, he's he's done some excellent work looking into that sort of behavior. And like, I, I don't get a lot of those emails, funnily enough. I, I think Interesting. they just see publisher. And like when I was new, I used to get a few, but then over the years, they've just dropped off and I barely hear from those sorts of things unless I'm running a Kickstarter anymore. Um, but yeah, he's well worth having a look at. Yeah, David Gogra is another good one as well. Um, he has a lot of author beware stuff. Oh, and also the um, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association of America have like an author's beware section where they're like, yeah. oh, these publishers aren't legit. Uh, that, that's useful stuff to consider as well. Yeah. Um, is that yeah. Writers Beware or is that a different organization? No, you're right. I think it is Writers Beware. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. That would they're, make sense. They're good. Um, yeah, they're, they're pretty useful. Uh, and they do things like they're taking on Disney for <laughs> the whole Disney must pay thing. So, you know, they, they have uh, yeah. the guns to do it. Um, I'd love to transition to talking a bit about Grimdark Magazine. So you've said that you've, you've been running it for about seven years. Is that correct? Yeah. I looked at LinkedIn this morning, seven years and three months. <laughs> Heck yeah. So yeah, talk me through like, why did you want to start that up? And what was it kind of like getting it off the ground? Because I'm sure a lot of people who love reading would love the idea of creating their own magazine, but it's incredibly difficult, I would imagine, particularly you know, these days when there are so many entertainment options between your streaming services and everything else to try to get people to, you know, want a physical or a digital magazine even. So yeah, what was that kind of like the origin story of it? Um, it, it started out because like you, um, you know, I kind of was in the short story submission market for a bit and I was getting my you know, four hour rejections from Neil at Clark's World and yeah. you know, my, <laughs> eight months rejections from, from tour.com and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and um, they, they came to this point where I was just like, I, I looked at some of the magazines was like, you know what? And I didn't look at them all. I'm not going to pretend like I did thorough market research on this. I looked at a few and I got the shits and I was like, you know what? There's nowhere, there's no magazine dedicated to the kind of stuff that I like to, to read and, and write about. And so I just went, you know what, as usual, I hate free time. So <laughs> this, this is what I'm, this is what I'm going to try to do. And so I, I sat down with a mate and a mate of mine was kicking off a, um, a consultancy business that helped people plan out businesses. And he, he just yes. went, Hey, you know, we we're sitting down over some beers at his house and he just went, I got a whiteboard. Do you want to, you know, can I practice building a business with you from scratch and mm. do you just, you know, you can just take it with you. And I went, oh, but yes, let's, let's do it. And so mapped it out, um, you know, went through some, um, some Simon Sinek uh, marketing um, approaches and oh, who's the other guy? He's, he's a bald fella, American bloke. God, I can't remember his name, but um, yeah, I was, no, that's not him. I've, Another oh, bald guy. I've actually, I've actually seen him <laughs> live. Good. Yeah, Seth Godin. Yeah, nice. Lovely um, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so like the, and that's, those are two of the people that actually took, you know, the, the message that I've carried throughout about creating really, really clear, um, you know, this is exactly our niche. This is what we mm. sell. We don't go outside that niche. Yeah. And so did that um, rather conveniently. Uh, my mum's a brand manager and oh, a visual perfect. designer. So she, uh, <laughs> you know, she kind of helped me out and then she used to work for, um, publisher in Australia back when she was in her 20s and, and fresh out of uni so she kind of had some idea of how it got put together she knew she knew, knows how to put magazines together you know she used to put together Hot Wheels and you oh, know cool. uh, street street fours or whatever they were all these car magazines so you know I chatted with her took some advice and I just went let's just do it um, you know chatted to my then girlfriend just said okay you know I have this money and I just want to uh, kind of just want to have it have a crack at it and she she gave me the advice that i gave her a little while back where i said you know, go talk to someone else who's done it mm. and find out what goes wrong so i hit up uh, a guy i hit up neil clark from clark's world mm. and i hit up another fellow who to my absolute shame i can't remember these names just escaped me it like i said terrible memory do you remember what magazine um, he's from 
No, he actually ran a suite of magazines. Oh, so okay. he ran a head publishing company and he had a bunch of magazines sitting under him. And I think, yeah, I just can't remember what they were. This was, like I said, seven, seven odd years ago. And um, pretty much what they did was both of them just came back and said, look, if you want to lose a whole bunch of money, uh, get really <laughs> frustrated and you know get burnt out pretty quickly by working a lot and not achieving anything, you should start a publisher. And I just went, well, Sign me just, up. yeah, I was just like, well, that just sounds like, being an author, except yeah. I get throw money at it. And so I said, uh, <laughs> let's give it a go. And, and I was in a very fortunate position of, um, you know, having no debts, no major responsibilities. Um, you know, we, we'd found, we were lucky we'd found a nice little apartment that didn't cost a lot. So I did have the disposable income to do. And that would be, if anyone ever says to me, you know, I want to kick off a magazine, how do I do it? I would say you can expect to not make money and have to put in money over a long period of time. So for us, it took four years to break even. Wow. So it takes time, but there's a lot of lessons you can learn. So like when I first started, I was just like, I'm not using Amazon. No, not using it. I'm just going to set up my own web store. Sure. So I, I use um, that Bezos. Yeah. So you know, I set up Shopify, which costs like 50 Australian a month to run on a website. Yeah, it's expensive. Crazy. Yeah, it's sexy. And then it wasn't until about two issues in, I can't remember who pulled me aside and just went, what the hell, you fucking idiot. Just get rid of that. Get rid of that cost. Chuck it on Amazon yep. and just do like just do affiliate links to your own hmm. book. And then all of a sudden, I realized, okay, so that creates two streams of income. Yes, and so absolutely. publishing, yeah. And so like publishing in this, in what the what I do is all about creating a lot a lot of little streams of income to create a river of income that pays for your operations. Sure. And so about, uh, probably about two years ago, and excuse me if I'm, if I'm ranting and going off track here, but about no, this two is, years this ago. This is what I want to hear about. This is perfect. Yeah, cool. So about two years ago, I went, okay, I actually need to, if I'm going to keep doing this, I have to draw a line in the sand. Either I go right I'm only ever going to break even. I'm not going to, you know, this is never going to go anywhere or I need to look at somebody else who's doing the same sort of thing that I am with web content and um, publishing and see why they do it better than I do. So mm. I went over to tour.com's website and went, right, they kind of do the same thing I do, just a million times better than <laughs> the way I do it. Sure. And, I went, and I realized that they had this constant stream of content coming off their site their hits were just in the thousands and thousands every single day. So creating so much traffic, which they could then drive towards those new novellas that they started releasing a few years back. Yeah, I remember I that. Went, that's genius. Mm. And so I went, right, that's what I'm going to do. So um, I linked up with James and eventually Beth. We built a, a bigger, more robust um, team of reviewers who were just mad keen to get stuck into it. You know, they, they're basically, they're volunteers. They essentially get paid in um, advanced reader copies. Yes. And, you know, and so pretty much they've just sold all the earth people. And we just got stuck in to go and write, how do we get from one post every other week to how do we get to a post a day? How mm. do we get to a post a day and then another post every two or three days? You know, how do we create this constant stream of content that we're using to get people to come to our website to then see our products that drives um, affiliate revenue. It drives sales of our publishing products. Uh, it drives our ability to say to people, Hey, you want to advertise on our website and buy some advertising space. Here's our stats. Here's the amount of people we reach on Facebook, Twitter, um, the amount of people that come through our website every month, which at the moment I think is probably around 40,000 people a month. And so we nice. go, and, and all of a sudden you can say, okay, that's how I can build a bunch of streams of revenue to, you know, to create a river of money that we can use to build the operation, to pay, uh, you know, I paid Alexis, um, Alexis DeWick, who's from the Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers Group. She runs Acid Media, builds websites that are amazing. She's built our one and Before We Go blog, and then a bunch of other ones outside of the industry, but she's brilliant could afford to pay her to rebuild our website. And then 
pretty much it's allowed it's put me in a position where i'm pretty confident that either end of this year maybe maybe likely into next year i can start going all right for our reviewers how do i start creating a pool of money that i pay you also awesome. to me like being able to have money moving through gdm and to the people that create it and run it mm. is probably one of the most important goals that i have sitting right alongside you know all the the fanboy pieces of fiction that i want to publish from all the people that you know i love reading absolutely yeah wow okay that's that's really cool hearing that journey because yeah i think again just to emphasize like four years that's a that's a very long time to wait before something becomes profitable how do you how did you kind of have the patience to go through that like was it did you know like did you have it planned out such that you were confident that the financials are going to work was it just more of a blind optimism thing was it you were just really enjoying it yeah yeah i'd call it blind optimism at the outset <laughs> so from from the start like the first two years was just like oh my god i've just published ask got backup oh my god yeah. i just got to interview joe abercrombie holy shit you know i, I awesome. just did an interview with cameron hurley you know oh wow you know we, we just got after the first time we've been quoted on the back of someone's you know um traditionally yeah. published book yeah, you know, all these you things. You see heaps like, these days. You guys are cropping up yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you know, all those moments of excitement probably lasted to about year the end of year two. Mm -hmm. And then the start of year three was when I started, you know, I'd get to the start of the quarter. I wouldn't hear back from some authors because my pool was quite small. And I'd start going, oh, do I actually want to keep doing this? And that's why by the time we got to year four, we, we just had some, some luck, I think. I feel like year four might have been when we ran evil as a matter of perspective and by the end it was so cooked that i was dead that was a point where i hit that line in the sand where i just went okay i just produced something amazing it's sitting on my bookshelf it's real everyone's received their books i don't owe anyone money uh, you know the last issue broke almost exactly even to the dollar and i kind of spoke to fee and i just went this might be the moment to say it's i've had a good run I've got something for my trophy case, which is the you know, evil as a matter of perspective print. Um, and it's time to just say, you know what, this doesn't work. And, you know, it's, it's never going to be something massive. And then that's the point where I started thinking, no, actually, I've just spent four years getting it to this point. I can see things that are working, things that aren't working. How do, like, how do I hit these next steps? And then eventually that led to you know, a couple of years ago, meeting up with um, the, the people that, that run the magazine now. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's, that's Mike, that's which I should say has been around since almost day one. He nice. will throw a beer at me for not mentioning that. <laughs> I mean, Grimdark, I'm sure he just saw that word and was like, cool, I'll, I'll give you all my stories from now on. Um, that is our thing. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really cool. And I appreciate you sharing that story because at least in my mind, and this has gone back for a couple of years, like Grimdark Magazine has always been like one of the big blogs out there when it comes to fantasy book reviews, along with, yeah, probably Booknest, which I used to write reviews for, so I'm probably a bit biased there. Yeah, Before, no, they're obviously. great. Booknest yeah, is Booknest, Booknest is awesome. Um, yeah, they have, have some great reviews there. I think it's like over 2,000 reviews as well, which is which is pretty huge. Um, yeah. But yeah, Grimdark Magazine definitely is like one of the ones that's super up there for me. And I think you guys have done such a fantastic job of not only like positioning yourself within the grimdark genre and just being like very clear on what you are, which makes it really easy for people like me, you know, when they hear about it to just go, Oh, I know what I can expect. Um, but also I feel like in a sense, it's almost sort of defined and uh, kind of shaped the grimdark genre in that sense of just understanding what books could be classified as grimdark, you know, how you guys sort of analyze and, and review them. So yeah, it's, it's done really well. So I'm glad that you have persevered for one. Yeah, cheers, yeah. I, I do need to say that like the reason that this magazine works is because of the people that, that essentially volunteer their time. Sure. You know, Mike, who's been, like I said, he's edited now 26 issues of GDM, two anthologies, one collection, and he's about to do another one. Pretty like any time I try to give him anything, he basically tells me to, to go fuck myself. So like <laughs> He, he does it because he loves it. He does it because it's helped him build his own amazing book of um, clients. You know, he, yeah. he gets to edit for some amazing authors and, and that sort of stuff. But without him 
the publishing side of it pretty much falls down because I'm not a very good editor. I'm great at organizing stuff. I'm, I'm great at, you know, having my pot, my, my hand in 10 pots at once to, to make sure I understand what's going on. But he makes that side of it run. And then Beth and James make the uh, web content side of it run. And about, I feel we've probably got about 30, 30 people in our reviewer pool. Um, there's probably about 15 who are, who are quite active. Um, those guys make the web content work. And, and like I said, uh, you know, they're not getting 50 or 70 or a hundred bucks, you know, per, per review or article or piece of work. They're doing it because they love books and, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're doing it because they, they like contributing to the community and like hands down, like I said, with, without those guys. And that, that's probably the major difference is that prior to, you know, four years ago, um, I tried to do a lot of it myself. And then after that, I went, that doesn't work. You know, we need to, we need to get the right people in to help us drive this forward. But then there also has to be a goal in my mind. And most of them, I'm sure when I, I show them the idea of, you know, paying them at some point, they will all tell me to probably, you know, like I said, go fuck myself. <laughs> but, you know, that's my goal is to find sure. a way to, to reward them you know, a bit better than I have been. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's, it is for a lot of reviewers, myself included, when I was in that phase, it, it is a huge reward to just get access to advanced reader copies and everything. But yeah, obviously yeah. you want to try to try to build upon that. Also, just for clarifying, because I realized I've made this mistake before, by Mike, you're talking Mike Myers, who edits for Grimdark Magazine, yeah. right? Yeah, cool. Because yeah. before, I, when you said his name, I was like, Mike Fletcher again? Stop mentioning that guy. And then I realized, <laughs> oh no, there's multiple Mikes who are involved here. So just wanted to clarify that for our listeners. Um, yeah, we'll stuff in a brilliant. second. Yeah, he's, oh, I've heard he's no a great worries. editor. I actually would love to work with him one day, so I might reach out to him for the next book, potentially. Yeah, the great so, thing about him is in the same way that I'm like, you know, publishing is my jam. Mm-hmm. He's not, some, you know, he's, he's like editing is his jam. He has a list of English lit degrees and masters as long as his arm. Yeah. He talks about participles and all this random stuff that I'd never heard of I've before heard I spoke to him. <laughs> he's, he's blunt, he's brutal, but he's, brilliant highly highly yeah. recommend him gdm would not have been um you know we wouldn't have been uh what do you call it we wouldn't have won that stabby award without yeah. him so the, the 2017 stabby wouldn't have got that we definitely wouldn't have been shortlisted for the um uh british fantasy award a couple of years back either like mm-hmm. he just he makes every word on that page pop and that's another presumably draw card for authors wanting to write for you as well as like if especially if they've heard about him or if they've had experiences with him in the past, they know there's going to be a good editor on the end of this. So not only do I get the backing of the magazine, but I get to work with this editor and hopefully improve my craft and, and pick up some new yeah. skills through that as well, which is useful. Because it was just me, their stories would just look like probably second drafts. <laughs> I'd... I'll give yourself more credit. I'm sure it wouldn't be that bad. I'm sure, it would oh, be that mate, bad. Third drafts, maybe. Third drafts, maybe. Maybe third draft at, at best. Thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll start wrapping this up in a second because we've been talking for like 70 minutes, which is insane. So thank you for your time. No worries. Um, first of all, quick shout out to Nate Auburn who did the review for the Thunder Heist. Thanks, Nate. Not sure if you're listening. Um, it was a great review. I really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, so definitely check out the Kickstarter. Um, I'll give you a second to, to plug it again in a moment. Uh, I'm going to be getting a copy. Can't wait that cover alone is probably worth the price for admission. Um, and I got to support Michael Fletcher, I suppose. Otherwise he'd probably come and, come and throw a chill degree, uh, like a cheese sandwich at me or something. Um, or at the very least, just harass me on future episodes of the podcast. So I'm, I'm contractually obliged <laughs> to do that. Um, but yeah, Adrian, do you want to maybe just, again, like point to where people can get that Kickstarter? I'll um, include a link in the show notes and everything. But yeah, if you just have any, any final words about it. Yep. Uh, King Must Fall, we are within spitting distance of adding two more authors and f- uh, basically an audio version of the book for every single backer. Um, you know, with, with a bit of luck, we'll add another two more authors to it. So um, yeah, jump on board. Like I said, this stuff's my jam. I love doing it. This book's going to be beautiful. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and we are a big fan of spit on this show as well. I think we've uh, made many <laughs> we've made many jokes about how Michael Fletcher loves including all sorts of bodily fluids particularly spit in his books, um, God, which I'm sure you're so good. very familiar with. So <laughs> if you are a fan of spit and you also like good stories, then definitely check out The King Must Fall. 
Um, Adrian, thanks so much for coming on the show and for yeah talking for like a ridiculous amount of time. I was planning for this to go for half an hour, but this was just a yeah, sorry, conversation. So <laughs> no, 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 no. It's great. Like I love those chats where you're just like, oh, I'll be half an hour. It'll be good. But then you get into it and you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Like I don't want Adrian to stop talking. This is just such a cool insight into publishing that I've never had before. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, is there any any places? I guess you probably want people going to the Kickstarter, but um, beyond that, obviously, are there any places where you, people can follow you on social media? Obviously, Grim Dark Magazine is is your thing. Any places yeah. that you would like people to to head to? Uh, I don't really have any personal ones up, so it's really just any of the GDM stuff is is perfect, mate. Awesome. All right, Adrian, thanks for coming on the show. Um, yeah, everyone, definitely check out the King Must Fall. Awesome Kickstarter. Uh, I'm can't wait to get my copy as well. Thanks, Adrian. See ya. Yes. This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you would like to help support the show and get access to cool bonuses like free advanced reader copies of our new books, feedback on your own writing, ad-free episodes, and more, please go to patreon.com forward slash wizards warriors words. You can also find the link to that in our show notes. And as we end this episode, thank you to our special high tier Patreon, Daniel Henderson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.